Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure uh, to do an interview that I've been waiting a long time to do, which is with the author of Organizing for Transgender Rights, Collective Action, Group Development, and the Rise of a New Social Movement. Uh, the book was published by SUNY Press in 2019, and the author is Anthony Nouns. Tony, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well today, Heath. How are you doing? Good, good. I um, have been eager to read the book and eager to talk to you about it. Um, before we get to the book, why don't you share just a little bit about yourself? Okay, let's see. Uh, I am a professor here at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I focus my research and teaching primarily on interest groups and lobbying, but uh, have a few other, a few other, I guess I would say, side uh, topics that I uh that I look into occasionally. I've, I've done a few projects recently on celebrity endorsements, for example, which is, which is kind of fun, but uh, um, that's it. I guess the other, the only other thing I would mention is that I studied with uh, uh, Alan Sigler, sort of a, in my mind, you know, it, kind of a, a legend in the world of interest group politics and just uh, shout out to my late mentor there at the yeah, university, and- at the university of Kansas. The, the book and, and your, your background is, as you describe is, is, um, uh, very much in the interest group politics world, uh, the study of transgender rights and transgender politics has started to pop up. And there's all sorts of uh, uh, new work, uh, scholarly articles and books that are sort of appearing. Mm-hmm. Your take is is novel based on the background that you have. And, and I wanted maybe to sort of start there about what brought you to the subject matter. Um, why transgender rights and the movement associated with it? What's your entry to this this topic? Well, um, that, that's a good question. And people ask me that all the time. In fact, very early on in this project, uh, one of the first people I contacted, and by the way, I have to say that the people I interviewed, I mean, just, you'll never meet a, a nicer, more committed, passionate and compassionate group of people in your life. I'm just, I was uh, just shocked and flabbergasted at how happy and willing they were to tell their stories. And also, uh, recount to me some pretty harrowing stuff, but it was a practical reason that I chose this uh, topic, and and that's I say that because I wanted to interview as many people who started their own groups as possible, and there are a lot of uh, subject areas, topics, whatever you want, however you want to put it, that, that those people simply are not around. You know, if you wanted to envir- if you wanted to interview the first group of people who started environmental groups, you know, that was 150 years ago. It just, they're, they're not around. So it was a practical reason that brought me into the world of transgender politics more than any interest in the substantive policy area initially. Now, when I, since I started the project, I have definitely uh, learned a lot more about transgender rights and, and, and even started some other research into the topic, but it was a practical reason at first. I know that these people are around, they're happy to talk, they're, um, very accessible compared to activists in a lot of other uh, issue areas, and and it was a practical uh, reason that I that I started uh, it, researching this topic in the first place. Yeah, and you know today I think that that many of the the transgender rights organizations uh, would be quite familiar to us, and and their names, which we some of them will talk about, uh, are are part of the political conversation. Uh, but not so in the past. I wonder if you could sort of take us back. How far back do we have to go to find the first identifiable group? Uh, where were they started? Uh, why were they started? And, and are they still around today? Well, um, you know, as I try to recount in uh, the second chapter of the book, 
it, you know, that, that it's a complicated story. And at the same time, it, it, it's pretty straightforward because it sounds familiar to people who study this sort of thing. And that is that you had sort of the first rumblings of transgender organizing in the 50s and 60s uh, in the places you would suspect, San Francisco, California, uh, New York City. And as is often the case when you study interest groups, you find out a, a lot of information about those groups has has vanished, uh, though I did the best I could looking at some archival information and some some uh, old uh, old school zines, I guess the uh, uh, people call them. Um, and you, you really didn't see what I considered sort of a national group, a group that even had national aspirations until 1964 with the foundation of something called the Erickson Educational Foundation that was founded by a guy named Reed Erickson, a real fascinating character if you look him up, who later went on to, to, to spend his fortune on doing research on paranormal things and human-animal communication. But he, he started in the mid-60s, uh, and that's the, the first group that I could identify that had truly national aspirations and actually did some things that, that were a blip on the national, uh, the, the national scene. What's so meaningful for your theoretical approach to this is answering that question of why. Uh, why then? Uh, why that organization? Why do groups form? And you present a couple of different theoretical reasons uh, that, that you might test, and you test them in the book. I wonder if you could sort of lay out for us, you know, basically, what are the, the main uh, hypotheses about why groups form? And, and, you know, which ones stand out to you as the ones that you wanted to test most closely uh, with transgender rights? Well, I guess rather than getting into too much detail about some of the more specific theoretical notions that I test, I'll stick with sort of the two big ones. You know, I, th I, I think you, you're, you're probably a little bit younger than me, but <laughs> when I look at your picture, you got a lot more hair, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that you were in, when you were in graduate school like me in your interest group class or American political thought classes, you know, you were exposed to this pluralist notion that when, when the going got rough, groups sort of got together and, and um, individuals kind of rose up, formed their own interest groups and pressed their demands on government. And then if you sort of followed the literature temporarily, then you got into the Mansur Olson collective action problem stuff. And those were sort of the two linchpins of the, uh, the of the, you know, theoretical literature in on interest group formation. You had pluralism on the one hand and sort of collective action theory, ex incentive theory, exchange theory, whatever you wanted to call on the other. And they're, of course, very different uh, approaches to explaining group formation as I try to as I view it, and as I say in the book, one is sort of a demand side theory, and the other one is a more supply side theory. And those were the sort sort of two general notions that I wanted to look into, um, though there are some more specific, uh, you know, theoretical notions that I that I test in the book. But those those are what I would consider the two big ones. And um, sort of the follow up question to that is, I, I find that both of them have some merit, though I think that at least people who are trained when I was trained, and that would be the late the late eighties and the early nineties. I think maybe we emphasize the limits to collective action and the barriers to collective action maybe a little bit more uh, than we should have, because if there's one thing we know, it's that uh, groups overcome collective action problems all the time. And, you know, that's not a particularly profound notion. I'm certainly not the first person to come up with it. But I think it's important uh, to, to remind people that, you know, we can wring our hands all we want about people never being able to get their act together to uh, organize, but they do it all the time. And you know, in a lot of cases, they do it, as I talk about in this book, exactly or pretty close to the way the pluralist said that they would. Things happen to them that are really bad. And in the case of this population, again, I can't 
I can't even tell you some of the stories that people told me, really horrifying, disgusting, awful things. And to, to, to think that they could never act collectively because so many of them would be free riders, it's, you know, on its face is kind of silly. And I found a, a lot of evidence to suggest that, uh, you know, the sorts of threats and grievances and disturbances that pluralists thought were important in group formation are actually indeed very important. And that's something that I think was not uh probably didn't get enough attention, at least when I was in grad school. And I think we're beginning to turn the corner a little bit on that. But I hope that answers your question. It was sort of a long-winded <laughs> response. No, it absolutely wasn't long-winded at all, which raises another question, which is, how did you go about answering uh, this this question? The You've alluded to talking to people, but maybe you could talk in, in a little more detail about kind of how you went about um, uh, uh, identifying the groups, uh, how, how eager and willing were they to talk, and what are the kinds of questions that, that you asked them in, in the conversations that you had? Well, um, I actually relied primarily in this book on, on interviews with people who started their own transgender rights interest groups. There's, there's 27 of them, which doesn't seem like a lot of people. But as I try to at least sort of defensively in the book point out is that that's a pretty substantial proportion of all the people in human history who have started their own viable transgender rights groups because there haven't been very many of them. And and uh, so, you know, I think that's a lot of people. But I didn't just rely on the, the, the interviews, of course. I also, uh, you know, I looked at a lot of historical data, a lot of journalistic uh, treatments of transgender rights, some historical uh, documents, a lot of other things. And then I do have some just sheer quanti quantitative data on numbers and such that I try to use to draw some conclusions. But again, the book relies mostly on these uh, interviews. Now, I've done this sort of thing before with, with other group leaders, and basically there's a lot of labor on the front end, and it just requires me goofing around, looking around on websites and in books and in articles, uh, identifying individual groups, which is where I started lists of groups, and from there, trying to find the names of the people who started them, and then the final step is trying to find these people, reach out to them, and seeing if they'll talk to me. Um, I can't remember the exact number. I have the book right here in front of me, but I can't remember what page it's on. I, I can say that the vast majority of people, almost all the people I contacted who I could find, uh, email or phone, were not just willing to talk to me, but very happy to, to do so. Um, and I think many of them felt vindicated, you know, like I knew my life's work was important and here's someone who is... Uh, who agrees with me. A lot of them, frankly, I, I don't want this to sound gauche, but are getting toward the end of their lives. And we're just very happy that um, their work was uh, important enough to get noticed. And we're more than happy to tell me their their stories. Uh, as far as what I asked them, I I do have an appendix which, which, which lists the questions, but it was a pretty open-ended process where I just said, you know, tell me your story. It, but I tried to zero in on, you know, why? Why'd you do this? Um, what barriers did you face? Um, how did you do it? Where'd you get the money? What'd you do? Uh, how, did, how did people react to you? Just real basic questions like that. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms, of course, that I understand is that you, you can't really learn that much about groups just by talking to people who have successfully formed groups. It'd probably be a good idea to talk to people who failed as well to get an idea of what works and what doesn't. Uh, one of the advantages of, of these people is many of them have long histories as activists and could also recount for me stories of uh, uh, abject failures that they had trying to form groups. So I think that's an advantage in the book, though. I think there's probably less about what doesn't work in the book than what works, but maybe that, that'll be book number two. Before we get to kind of what you found about the what, what leads groups to form and, and successfully form, 
maybe you talk a little bit about about what they were forming in order to do. Uh, what does it mean to organize for transgender rights? What are the claims that were made in the, this early period, uh, in the, the first set of, of, of groups? And are those the same uh, rights, the same policy issues that transgender rights organizations are fighting for today? Um, I, th- I think the way that you phrase the question, the, the, the answer to the second question is a definite no. The sorts of issues that these people talked about, um, especially initially and really up to the last few years, were not the issues we think of today. And by that, I'm thinking specifically of things like bathroom bills. I mean, I think most of the, the activists I talked to, if you told them there's going to be a big uh, nationally uh, nationally salient fight about what restroom uh, you are allowed to use. I think they would laugh because their concerns were literally life and death. I want to be able to go outside and not be killed or assaulted or raped or uh, otherwise um, uh, endangered. And I would like the law to to recognize this and make sure that uh, I'm I'm safe uh, doing what I want to do and going where I want to go. And this this is sort of. Uh, underappreciated aspect of this entire story is that most of the early transgender organizing, or a lot of it was done by transvestites, um, and they have sort of been left behind in this movement. Um, You know, we're talking about, in a lot of cases, straight, male, white transvestites who had the same goals as what we would call transgender advocate uh, activists today. I want to be able to do what I want, go outside and and not get hassled, not get arrested, not get assaulted. but that's, that's a part of the story that probably needs a little bit more attention in the future. But uh, getting back to your first question, I think their goals were, you know, uh, pr- pretty general. Again, I just, I want to be safe. I want to be protected by the law. I want to be able to work. I don't want to get fired for being transgender. I want to be able to get the health care that I need. I don't want insurance companies to discriminate against me. Pretty basic bread and butter quality of life uh, ki- kind of stuff that we see from lo- lots of uh, civil, civil rights and civil liberties organizations. Now, are there are there maybe two examples uh, from the book uh, that illustrate kind of the two different paths to formation that you discovered? Uh, uh, two different organizations that that uh, that pursued a, a, a different way to, to starting that that might ex- sort of express some of the findings from the book. Oh boy! Now that you're putting on me, put me on the spot a little bit because some of these stories run together. A little bit. I, I can give you, you know, I guess I don't know if I would even say there's two general paths because I think uh, most of them were pretty similar and they um, th- th- there are a few differences. But but I would say most of them are are people who at some point fairly early in their lives realized that being a transgender person in the United States is extraordinarily difficult, um, that the sorts of things that most people take for granted, they can't take for granted, like being able to get medical care, being able to get uh health insurance, being able to have a job and uh, dress and behave as they want to without fear of of getting fired. Uh, What I found in general, uh, again, not particularly profound, but very important is this is what sort of activates them to interact with other people. And interactions are key in virtually all of the uh, groups that I talk to where they learn at some point there are other people out there like me, or at least other people out there enough like me to convince me that I'm not alone. And this has some, at least in my reading, some very profound uh, implications for group formation. Once you realize I'm not alone, there's other people like me. This really seemed to encourage or 
induce or whatever you want to say a, a lot of these founders to to really get started. And then it's that point maybe that there might be a deviation. One path is, okay, I'm going to use every resource I have to try to get this off the ground. Uh, and the other path is perhaps I can get some external resources. I found that the first path is much more common than the second path. Um, I, I don't know why that's the case, but I just didn't really run into too many people who ended up getting a lot of external help to start their groups. You know, it is at this point where the time element comes in. Once these people sort of are activated and make this decision, then they have to decide, well, where, you know, what what specifically uh, am I going to do to reach out to other people? And that's when these different modes of communication. And in the old days, I tell some stories about people meeting in hotel rooms and in libraries and in uh, having conferences in uh states and and cities that might be friendly to them and uh, the, these days of course it's a lot easier and virtually free they they hook up on the internet uh, actually hook up means something different now i should probably uh, take that back they yeah, find sure. each other on the internet they interact on the internet uh which provides a, a huge boost um it's at that point you know a, a lot of these groups in a lot of these people when i talk to them they say i don't know why you're interviewing me i'm not a political person and then two minutes later would say everything about what I do is political. Nothing is not political. Um, uh, just surviving in this world for a transgender person is political. I had a lot of people telling me th uh, things like that. So again, another sort of rambling answer to your question, but um, you know that that's sort of the most common, very general path that I saw these people uh, take. And then of course, there's sort of the practical considerations. Uh, what does it mean to have a group? I have to incorporate, I have to get, I have to fill out documents, I have to get lawyers, I, I have to make this thing a, a going concern, um, which, you know, it, it's not, I don't think it sounds particularly difficult, um, but it's, it's also not easy. And, and again, a lot of these people, and I don't think it's an accident, are extraordinarily well-educated, very highly intelligent together uh, with being passionate uh, people. So I don't, again, I don't think that's probably a long-winded way to answer your question, but I hope that gives you an idea of what, what these people were up to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and maybe we can wrap up just talking about the, the landscape today. Uh, who are the pro prominent organizers? Uh, what are the prominent groups uh, today? Who's, who's most powerful uh, in the, the set of transgender rights organizations? Let's maybe just say at the national level, who, who are the power players? Well, that's actually a really good question, because one of the things that um, a lot of my respondents told me and, and I don't think a lot of them are particularly happy about it, though they're not upset about it, is that um, uh, these standalone transgender groups that I talk about in this book um, really, in a lot of cases, have sort of taken a back seat to the very large, nationally known, much better resourced uh, LGB and now T groups like the Human Rights Campaign and the, uh, the National Gay and Lesbian a task force, uh, or I guess now they call themselves the, the task force. I, you know, if I had to say what groups are most active, best resource, and perhaps even most impactful, it would be those groups, um, which I don't talk a lot about in the book, but I think one of the uh, things that I perhaps uh, want to make very clear in this book is I don't think those groups take on transgender rights without these groups doing it first, if that makes any sense. I think a lot of these broad-based umbrella LGB groups added the T because of these groups. Um, but in terms of standalone transgender groups, I th there's a couple that stand out. Um, the National Center for Transgender Equality is a, is, is a 
fairly large by these standards uh, group that has a very a, a very um, strong national presence. One of the things that I find interesting is that a lot of these groups, and again, I've even had some pushback by people who study citizen groups, is you can't even call that an interest group. But a lot of these groups don't do, because they simply don't have the resources, the things that bigger, more powerful citizen groups do. They do a lot of grassroots work. They do a lot of um, public, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, but uh, they... Public education is what I was thinking of. Uh, working on the public opinion side, which I, I think there's plenty of evidence uh, that it's working. <clears throat> and by that, I'm thinking about some some of the newer groups. Um, let me see a couple that come to mind. Um, the Trans Student Educational Resources, which is a very small group. Um, you have groups like Gender Proud, which is a relatively new group that does a lot of public advocacy type work. The other group that comes to mind uh, a couple of groups that do the more traditional lobbying stuff. You know, this, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project is a pretty a pretty big group. The Transgender Law Center is is a pretty uh, pretty active group, and so th those are just to name a few. But I, I think they are being eclipsed somewhat by the really by by these standards, gargantuan uh, mainstream gay rights group which groups that that are better resourced, much more visible, and have taken on transgender rights in the last ten to fifteen years. Yeah, the book again is Organizing for Transgender Rights, Collective Action, Group Development, and the Rise of a New Social Movement. The author who you've been hearing from is Anthony Nows. Tony, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. Hey, Keith, I just called you Keith. I appreciate it. Uh, I talk about this all day, but I won't. So thank you. <laughs>